Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. I'm Tom Williams. Before we jump into today's subject, um, unfinished business from our subject on Tuesday. You'll recall that we spoke, uh, talked about a film which was premiering on KUED. It's called Unspoken, America's Native American Boarding Schools. We talked about the U.S. government's uh, policy beginning in the late 1800s of cultural assimilation, whereby Native American children were bused uh, to boarding schools. Um, and uh, we got this comment uh, on that program. This is from uh, Lee Russell in the St. George area. He says, I taught for 30 years at a small community college in southeast Arizona and periodically would have Native Americans in my classes. I recall one young man who was originally from a local Apache reservation. He worked as a technician for the organization Up With People. Uh, talking with him one day, he told me that he uh, felt that he did not belong in either the Apache culture or the white culture. He did not speak the Apache language and had been in the white culture long enough that he did not have much attachment to Apache culture. In my little bit of research, I have found that those who get an Anglo education and try to adjust to that culture are referred to as apples, red on the outside, white on the inside. I'm Anglo and have learned to respect what little I know about Native American culture. I feel it is sad when children of a particular culture grow up not knowing the language of that culture and without understanding who they are and where they fit in. And that is uh, Lee Russell in the St. George area. Thank you for that comment. Keep those coming at upraccess@gmail.com, and you can also go to our website, upr.org. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. <music> Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. West Valley City Police Chief Lee Russo says that for a long time, police officers went to the scene of domestic violence calls and treated them in a mechanical way. They would ask for the facts, the who, what, and where, and then move on. But Russo says that type of investigation wasn't doing much to help the victims and officers. And officers oftentimes fail to recognize that behind a physically abused victim, there was a psychologically abused person as well. In January, his officers began using the Lethality Assessment Protocol, or LAP, program to help connect domestic violence victims to resources that can help them. Russo, along with the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, cites statistics and research showing that 47% of Utah homicides in 2015 were domestic violence-related, and the states uh, that are using the Lethality Assessment Protocol have reduced their domestic violence uh, homicide rate 50%. Chief Russo says the LAP is literally saving lives. In the meantime, the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition is asking state lawmakers for $895,000 in one-time funding to expand LAP training to just from just a few pilot program areas like West Valley City to a statewide initiative. Later in the program, we'll be talking with Jen Oxborough, Executive Director of Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. We may be joined later in the program by Dr. Ed Red. Representative Red uh, is working on this. Uh, and right now we bring in uh, West Valley City Chief of Police Lee Russo. Welcome to the program. Oh, good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so I understand you're you're from Maryland originally. Well, that, that's where I started out my career. I was uh, 22 years out in the Baltimore County Police Department. And uh, this lethality assessment protocol, as I understand it, started in Maryland. Is that where you learned of this, or did you learn about it later oh. on? Actually, I, I learned more about it later on. Uh, during the time frame when I was in Maryland, the the initial research was beginning, uh, but they hadn't concluded the empirical study for it. So it was later that I was introduced and, and came to understand the effectiveness of the program. So tell me about the, the you've just, uh, your department just started this in January, and you've, um, by all accounts, have had great success with this. I guess, first of all, we should we should back up and and explain a little more what the LAP is. What what exactly is the program? Well, what it is, is it's a series of 11 questions that officers can ask a victim to give a level of assessment to the threat that that victim is facing. And through the studies of the LAP, what they've been able to do is empirically show that a individual that scores above the threshold marker is 
likely to become the victim of a more serious assault during the next 12-month cycle. And as that you know, has been studied and, and proven by getting officers informed on the questions to ask and the answers to, they need to assess and then have a ability to have rapid access to an intervention and a support network is greatly aiding in victims in their knowledge of the situation that they're in and some options that they can you know, immediately act upon to hopefully break this cycle. So, I'm just guessing that a domestic violence call is one of the more difficult calls a policeman gets. It's, it's just it, very common. Com- it is. It's a very common call for us to get. We run on a lot of them every day, uh, but it's a very dynamic call because you, the, officers, the officer never really knows what they're walking into. Um, so, uh, you know, having a tool, you know, having something that gives the officer the ability to quickly assess what the conditions are and, and the contributing circumstances really helps everyone. I wonder if you could take me through, um, you know, what an officer would, would do, be looking for without the LAP, and then, then take me through what, uh, how the LAP would make a difference. Well, what it, you know, you know, historically what we did is we would get a domestic call, we'd arrive, we'd knock on the door, uh, we would separate the, the parties that were involved, whether they were just cohabitants or intimate partners, and we would start asking, you know, a series of questions, you know, name, date of birth, you know, the irrelevant things. Uh, because they were blocks on our reports that we need to start filling out. Uh, and many times, if there wasn't a crime committed when the officer was called to the scene because it was just a domestic argument, the officer would leave it at that. Uh, what Now, the difference with the uh, assessment protocol is there's a structure of questions to begin to ask about you know, historical behaviors, assaults, about access to weapons, about previous threats, uh, you know, uh, children, uh, in common, etc. And as the officers move through these 11 questions, uh, once the answers are provided, the officer can quickly assess, is this something where we need to make an immediate referral? And that was a tool that we didn't have before. We would typically finish our report, close the call, and we'd leave and basically wait for the next 911 call to come in. Now, the officer with a phone on his hip can pick out, you know, can dial a number, have a counselor on the other end of that line, and put a victim in contact with a support network immediately. And uh, so there's a press conference and, uh, of course, uh, testimony between uh, in front of the legislature. And, and some, uh, you know, victims of domestic violence are, are saying that uh, with the LAP, the lethality assessment protocol, they would have been able to get out of their situation sooner. I guess that's one of the big advantages. It, it, it creates a comfort level for the for the victim. You know, as, as you had already mentioned in the original press statement, when we talk about the two types of victims. You have that physical victim, the, the one that's been dealing with the physical abuse, but then you also have the psychological side. And they've been abused as well, but we have to connect and respond to that psychological being because the psychological being controls the physical being. And when we're able to make that connection, we're able to offer greater levels of support, get greater level of cooperation, better detail, you know, and willingness to move cases forward for prosecution, number one, and two, to get somebody considering their options and a safety plan. You, you know, they want to immediately relocate, or what are the strategies that they're going to implement you know, to protect themselves in the future? Uh, you've, uh, uh, I think this is to the, uh, the Tribune or the Desert News, you cited that uh, about half of your city's 400 aggravated assaults uh, and I guess that's last year, involved domestic violence? Right. We were actually doing a, a study on our homicides and serious assaults. And during that data collection and looking for common themes, one of the things that, that stood out was, you know, over these 400 serious assaults that we had had, half of them had a connection to domestic violence or intimate partner violence which I saw, saw something was extremely significant, and it's very difficult typically for the police to police inside of the privacy of somebody's home. But what the lethality program gives us is the ability that when we get that call, when we find ourselves inside of that home with a, with a victim, is a process to help us quickly determine what's the threat level and gives us a connection to a support network where we can move the victim forward and, and provide help instead of just walking away and saying, boy, I hope this gets better for you. Uh, 
something that the officer can now physically do to give aid to that victim. That's got to be a bad feeling under the old uh, program for an officer to <laughs> know or highly suspect there's a problem in the home, but just but just have to walk away. It, it, it was absolutely, it was a frustration. It was not only something that I had felt in my years, uh, but my officers feel. And the feedback that we're getting now from the officers is they're excited because they can do that next thing to protect that victim, to, to make someone's life better, to end the cycle of violence, hopefully, and really prevent these serious assaults and ultimately homicides. And you've also said that three people in West Valley City died from domestic violence last year, but as many as 200 potentially could have. So it's it's a big problem. Well, that, problem. that's that's correct. And yeah. you know what we have learned through the LAP program is if it's effectively implemented, generally in the first year, you'll see a crime reduction rate on domestic-related homicides of anywhere between 40 and 50%. So if we apply that to what we had last year, one of those victims more than likely would still be alive. I want to read just a portion of a comment that came in uh, in response to Deseret News article on this. And, and uh, uh, well, it'll become apparent what the, this uh, particular writer's uh, point of view is, but it, but it gets me into... Uh, the complications here. Uh, this writer says, the first paragraph, don't know how they can prove this, and is it legal to question and interrogate citizens without being informed by the right to have an attorney present under Miranda laws? And who gives the police the right to be judge, jury, and executioner in domestic argument? Uh, so you can see the, the, the tenor of, of that uh, particular writer's uh, uh, attitude. But, but that, that does bring up a question of, uh, this is a very complicated situation that a, that a police officer is in, as we mentioned earlier in the, in the program. It is, you know, and unfortunately we do have, you know, people with uh, these skewed perceptions. You know, sometimes it's because they're uninformed or underinformed or just simply misinformed. Uh, you know, the bottom line here is the, these monies that we have been working with the governor's office to be placed into the budget to support this network are going to go to fund counselors, to fund shelter uh, spaces for victims. Uh, and to provide training to police departments. And as I said, you know, at the bottom line, it is saving lives, and it has been proven to do so across the country. And to me, it was a no-brainer to move forward with something like this. It's not taking anybody's rights away. Uh, all we're doing is simply asking questions that help, one, educate an officer quickly, and two, enlighten a victim of the position that they're in. I'm curious, since you've had, uh, I think you had experience as a police officer in, back in Maryland, did you? And then, and then out here in Utah. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious about, I don't know, cultural differences and, and if that has any effect at all on, on domestic violence cases or prevalence of domestic violence. You know, I think it does. Um, you know, every community has its own standards and norms uh, and expectations in how it, it conducts itself. You know, I, I've witnessed that. I've been a police officer in Maryland and in Kentucky and, and now in Utah, uh, and, and each has been different. Uh, but one common theme with domestic violence and intimate partner violence is it's generally a hidden crime. It's something that happens behind closed doors. It's not something that people typically talk about. Um, you know, from a victim standpoint, they're, they're ashamed of what's going on, and they, and they feel like they have no power. From an abuser standpoint, it's all about power. And from a child standpoint, you know, we're, domestic violence is something that teaches. And we, we've learned that children who witness domestic violence in the home are more likely to either become victims or abusers themselves. And if we have a system here that now is going to be able to help us break a cycle, not only hopefully protect a, a victim's life, but will change the life of children that we have witnessed it. From a, I know we have to let you go here pretty soon. Uh, just um, about a minute left here. From we're going to talk to Jen Axborough from Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. We'll talk more in depth about this. But from a police officer's point of view, what what would you suggest if, if someone is experiencing domestic violence as a victim of this? What what would you suggest to them? Well, number one, don't hide it. And, and necessarily, I'm not saying the first thing you have to do is call the police. If there is violence, I strongly suggest it. 
Uh, but we need people to realize that the first report or revealing of a domestic violence situation more than likely is going to be to another close friend or family member that's uninvolved, that the situation's going on, and really how that person reacts is going to have a large amount of influence on whether or not a victim is going to move forward with the criminal justice system. If they okay. get support and, and nurturing, yes, they're probably going to move the things forward. But if somebody you know takes that and says, "Well, what did you do? What did you do wrong? Why would you, you know, why would you do that?" and basically make the victim question themselves as though they may have contributed to this, you know, it, it, the chances of it coming forward are significantly reduced. Well, thank you very much, West Valley City Chief of Police Lee Russo has uh, been with us. Uh, uh, he is uh, definitely an advocate for this program, Lethality Assessment Protocol. His department has been implementing this in the, in, in the past, well, since January, and has seen uh, very good results. Uh, Chief Russell, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking with Jen Oxborough, who is Executive Director of uh, the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. Uh, they are asking for one-time money from the legislature, $895,000, to expand lethality assessment protocol training from a few pilot program areas like West Valley City to a statewide initiative. Uh, we're talking about that on the program today. We'll uh, talk about uh, broader issues of domestic violence as well. Hope to hear from you. Perhaps you have an experience or would like to weigh in on this issue. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com is how you would join the program. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. A business leader frustrated with his organization's inability to do quality improvement recently called me and invited me to consult. Are you a specialist in our industry, was his first question. No, I said. Then how can you help, he asked. I said this, because in your workforce of 120 employees, you have 120 specialists in their area. They need better communication, better trust, and confidence that they can solve problems. I can help with that, and then I will leave. Consultants come and go. Employees stay and build up often untapped expertise that is the wellspring of excellence. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. The race for the presidential nomination is as unpredictable as it's ever been. For Republicans, it's South Carolina's turn to cast a ballot. For Democrats, it's caucus time in Nevada. I'm Ari Shapiro. Join me and Michelle Martin Saturday, February 20th for results and analysis from South Carolina and Nevada. Live election coverage from NPR News. Right here on Utah Public Radio, beginning at 5 Saturday afternoon. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about uh, an important uh, new uh, program. It's been uh, tried in some pilot areas in Utah and, uh, of course, been in other states as well. Uh, it's called the Lethality Assessment Protocol. It helps connect domestic violence victims to resources that can help them. Uh, Utah Domestic Violence Coalition uh, cites statistics and research showing that 47% of Utah homicides in 2015 were domestic violence related, 47%, and that states that are using the lethality assessment protocol have reduced their domestic violence uh, homicide rates uh, 50%. Uh, Chief Russo, who we just heard from, says the lethality assessment protocol is literally saving lives. Uh, Utah Domestic Violence Coalition is asking state lawmakers for $895,000 in one-time funding to expand LAP training from a few pilot program areas to a statewide initiative. And uh, coming up in the program, we may be joined by Representative Ed Red. Dr. Red uh, may join us if he's able. We turn now to uh, Jen Oxbar, who is Executive Director of Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me. That's a pretty, pretty impressive statistics. 47% of Utah homicides in 2015 were domestic violence related. States that are using the LAP have reduced their domestic violence homicide rate by 50%. This would seem like a no-brainer. Um, are, are, do you feel like your chances are good of getting this money from the legislature? 
We are incredibly encouraged and we're very, very positive, but we won't know for a couple of more weeks. Um, our, our funding request advanced last week out of the Social Services Appropriations Committee. And prior to that, we really need to, to thank Governor Herbert for identifying this as an important need in Utah and for identifying some, some recommended funding for us in his budget as well, So, which is different. That's different than we've ever seen before. I think our legislators and our governor are starting to notice this important issue, and they're trying to, to apply some evidence-based processes and protocols to it to try to make things safer in Utah overall. So we're very grateful, very hopeful. Looking at your website, uh, several areas are on the, I guess, the pilot phase of this. In northern Utah, people know CAPSA, uh, the agency, also the New Hope Crisis Center. Cache County Sheriff's Office, Logan City Police Department are, are participating. We've got some areas in the Wasatch Front and in southern Utah. Uh, Cedar City Police Department, Enoch City Police Department are, are participating. Canny Creek Women's Crisis Center, Dove Center. Uh, so you've got a, you've got some agencies uh, participating. Um, what are the results that you're seeing? So last year, we went to the legislature and said, we've noticed this problem that's been identified by the Utah Department of Health, and we want your help with it, and we have this idea. We've seen this protocol work. It's endorsed by the Department of Justice, and it's working in about 30 different jurisdictions across the country to reduce domestic violence homicide rates, improve um, officer safety, reduce officer-involved shootings, um, and improve prosecutions for domestic violence offenders as well. So the legislature gave us as much as they could at that point, um, a little less than $700,000, and that's why we kept it kind of small, Tom. We focused on those areas where we knew we could do a good job with training and we had strong partnership, and we're learning how to develop and implement and train right now. The feedback has been phenomenal. We started with about seven law enforcement agencies. We're up to about 30 now that are asking for training in this and trying to implement because we're seeing such positive returns. And really, one of the most important returns that we're seeing is this real connection to work as a team between victim advocates in those victim service provider organizations you just mentioned and our law enforcement teams. They're working on this together. They're, they're speaking the same language. They're using the same questions, and they're really able to engage victims in services and support overall, which helps people change their lives. It helps them attain safety much quicker and realize how dangerous their situation is. We see um, about 60% of the cases that we're screening are found to be in high danger, um, and about 87% of those people that are identified to be in high danger will connect with one of our trained victim advocates, and access services. Seems like that it's a big part of this, getting all of the agencies on the same page and connecting uh, connecting victims up with, with services sooner. Um, in fact, I want to uh, quote, uh, this is, I, I'm thinking I say your na- her name, Clyda, Clyda Berg, who That's is a right. survivor of domestic violence and also a, a member of the board uh, there at, the, uh, at your organization. She said if this would have... Uh, uh, if this would have happened 15 years ago, and in other words, implementation of this program, I probably could have gotten out faster than I did. She said, it took me three and a half years to leave my partner. I feel like with this program, we'll be able to save more lives. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you could talk first to why, and I think it, it puzzles some people, why it, it takes a long time for, for some victims to, to get out, to make that decision. You know, I think it's true across the country, um, even internationally. We see that domestic violence is a unique type of violence. It's very difficult to separate yourself from an abusive partner when you share children and you share a property, and that relationship is probably rooted in love, right? There's, There's a shared life and a commitment, and there's a lot of stigma and shame sometimes for survivors. In Utah, We take that situation and we make it even more complicated because we have so few victim resources for people. So in Utah, we don't have any ongoing dedicated funding at a state level to provide services for people. And what that does is it really limits access to victim services, supportive services, when people need help. So I'll give you an example. You named some of our member programs, the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. And I'm just staff to the coalition. I'm not the coalition. The coalition is a team of over 20 programs across the state who serve survivors. 
And we have 29 counties and really only 16 shelters in Utah. So in some parts of Utah, rural Utah in particular, you'll have one small shelter serving five or six counties. And so that makes it even more difficult for someone to reach out and engage in services and find help. What the LAP is doing is teaching officers to recognize domestic violence, recognize high-risk domestic violence, those cases that are likely to result in a homicide and or suicide, and then connect that person with a victim advocate that can talk to them no matter what the capacity issue is at the shelter, no matter what the situation, we're going to connect that person if they want to with a victim advocate on scene. And I think that sends a really important message to victims. I think this is what Clyda was getting at also. Um, When I've heard her speak and worked with her, she says, just knowing that someone recognized my situation was real, just knowing that someone cared about me enough to say, I want to help you find safety, I want to be there for you, that makes a huge difference to survivors as well. Um, I want to quote another person, Jennifer Campbell, Executive Director of South Valley Services. Uh, She talked in front of the legislature and uh, talked about how in her area, police and advocates have identified victims that have never been connected to services before using the LAP. As she said, we would never have found them without uh, this, this funding, without this uh, program. And I'm wondering if you could maybe explain why that is. What, what is it about those 11 questions and about connecting agencies together that uh, helps identify uh, victims sure. better? Um, the the lap is 11 evidence-based questions that were developed over 15 years ago by Dr. Jacqueline Campbell, and she's a researcher with Johns Hopkins University, and she's worked with the Department of Justice and the Office for Violence Against Women federally. So this, there's a lot of research that's gone into fine-tuning those questions, and they're very specific. Questions include, um, has your partner ever tried to strangle you? Um, does your partner have access to a firearm? Has your, has your abusive partner ever had a history or risk of suicide? We know from research, from empirical data, that there are certain markers that are greater contributors to homicide and suicide risk. And so those questions are very, very direct, and they raise awareness in the survivor as well. Dr. Campbell's research over the past five years with the National Violent Death Reporting System she found that women who were most likely to be killed by their intimate partner, only about 50% of them realized it. And what the screening does is it helps raise awareness in the survivor as well about typically her, domestic violence homicide tends to be perpetrated more more frequently against women. It does happen to men too, but um, but it raises her level of awareness. So I think it works in a number of ways. It helps us to coordinate our response, and it also helps to raise awareness in survivors. That's that's you're raising my awareness here. I, di- I didn't. Uh, I just had kind of the assumption that uh, if your partner was planning to do you harm, that you would maybe sense that or know that. But but I guess some potential victims don't don't realize. Right. I think that you know the survivors that I've worked with in direct service. It happens gradually over time, Tom. People don't um, tend to want to go out on a second date with someone who punched them in the nose on the first date. So, you know, domestic violence, um, control, financial abuse, emotional abuse. We see a lot of sexual violence in domestic violence situations. And often that, and, and that's another consideration considerable marker of risk for intimate partner homicide is if the abusive partner has been sexually violent um, with the with the survivor. Um, we know that there are things that, that definitely contribute more to this, but I think survivors um, are often ashamed, um, often have a hard time reaching out for help, and also they have this shared life and this connection to this person, and the, the violence and abuse have happened gradually over time. So it's difficult to um, to first become aware, know what your resources and your options are, and then make a plan. Uh, maybe this would be a good time to, I wanted to get into some basic questions, come back to the LAP. Um, and I'm looking at uh, the website, uh, Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, udvc.org. So signs of abuse, what, uh, what, what, what should we look for? You know, we run the statewide hotline for domestic violence crisis and referral, and you can call our hotline anytime. It's 1-800-897-LINK. We call it the link line because we are linking people to our community-based programs and services across the state. 
So I've told you that space is really limited and capacity is often um, maxed out in our services, but if you call that link line, we can always find help. We can also talk with you about the signs. So we take a number of calls every day from loved ones, neighbors, bishops, therapists, child welfare workers, judges, um, even offenders have called our line and said, this is what's going on, this is what I'm seeing, or this is what I'm concerned about um, in somebody's life, somebody that I care about, and um, what should I do. Things, things to watch for include isolation, um, overly controlling, stalking behavior, um, where one person, where the, the power and control in a relationship is, is displaced and imbalanced. So if one person is calling all of the shots in a relationship, that can be a red flag. Um, signs of emotional abuse can include withdrawal, somebody that maybe has been really connected to their sister or their family or their community and, and is increasingly isolated from their, their network of people. Um, that can be an indicator of domestic violence as well. Um, one of the key indicators is unemployment, access to firearms. Um, people ask us a lot of times if substance abuse is a contributing factor. And, and I always say substance abuse does not cause domestic violence, but it can make domestic violence risk worse. Um, I, I think some of the things that we miss sometimes can be a little less obvious, um, things like animal abuse. We work with a lot of women and survivors in rural communities who are afraid to leave because they have horses with their partner, they have dogs and cats, and they're not sure if that person, if their animals will be safe if they leave or if they can take their animals with them. If you call that link line, we can always find resources and help for people, and a lot of our shelters provide services for animals and pets as well. And I'm uh, looking at your website here, you're um, if I can get to this, uh, see, it's one of these uh, scrolling screens. Here it is. Financial abuse is a factor in 98% of domestic violence cases. Right, right. I think best put is to say if somebody's being abusive in the bedroom and the kitchen and the car and in the community, they're probably being abusive in the checkbook as well. And um, financial abuse can be one of the biggest barriers to um survivors finding safety. Um, the majority of women who are homeless in Utah became ho homeless or housing unstable because of domestic violence. So this is really interesting. I, I'm not from Utah, but I've been here about 12 years, and I love it here. Um, I think we can do a lot to address this issue in our community, and we're starting to see some real returns. Um, but compared to other places that I live, I'm I'm so shocked by how many kids we have here, Tom. We have the highest birth rate per capita in the country, according to the CDC. Mm -hmm. Certainly true. We have, we have 50% more babies than any other state and high rates of domestic violence, which means we have a lot of children who are being impacted by domestic violence in their homes in Utah as well. And we know that those kids are at risk of a lot of chronic issues throughout their lifetime if they don't get some help. So... I think one of the one of the most important things to note is that we need to reach out to families and help stabilize them um, as early on as we can. And I think that's another important thing that the lethality assessment protocol is doing is it's helping people to to realize earlier, hopefully, how how serious their situation is, and then what help and resources are out there. And uh, even apart from the long term effects on children, I'm guessing that uh, if if there are children in the home, that complicates the you know the decision factors for the woman deciding whether to leave or not, or what to do. Right. You know, um, if you leave, you tend to continue to share parental rights with someone, um, and if that person is abusive and controlling, and they lose control of you know their their parental rights or their access to their children and their partner, that can make risk factors much, much, much riskier. So the, the most dangerous time for someone when they leave an abusive partner is the first 72 hours after they leave, which is why we say it's so very important to work with a trained victim advocate during that period of time and, and work with our legal advocates as well to make sure that we have orders of protection um, and safety planning that will help support safety all the way around for for the adults and the children um, and the community members as well. You know, we, we've seen 
um, tragic deaths in the past year where innocent bystanders were killed when a domestic violence perpetrator was fleeing from law enforcement or um, fleeing after harming his family, um, caused terribly fatal car accidents, and um, we've had auto versus pedestrian accidents perpetrated by a domestic violence offender. So the, the reality of domestic violence trickles into our community in a very real way, and it, it does impact all of us. Um, I think when it comes to Utah's birth rate and our limited access to services, I think that's a real barrier for women. So we have one of the lowest earnings potential in the country for women, one of the highest birth rates. We have women with not a lot of financial resources who are very likely to have been financially abused with high rates of childbirth and lots of kids and not a lot of access to care. And, and that's probably why women are staying longer, too. Before we leave the, the subject of children, I'm, I'm noticing on your website, uh, under Know the Signs, so you have physical, emotional, financial, sexual, digital, reproductive coercion. Yes. Is one of yes. the signs. What, what are you talking about there? So this would be where um, an abusive partner is controlling the reproductive rights and decisions of their intimate partner. Um, this could be limiting access to birth control. This could be limiting access to family planning. Um, this could be, you know, unfortunately, and it, it's a really terrible situation, but we do hear about this. Um, where partners will try to ensure that their their um, intimate partner who they're abusing is pregnant or more dependent on them, and um, and you know women are more vulnerable when they're when they're pregnant, and um, the more children you have, the the more costly and higher rates of responsibility you have, and and the harder it can be to find housing. But I just want to impress on people that no matter what the situation is, we have qualified programs throughout the state that can help. And if you call our link line, we can always try to find help for someone. No matter where you are or what the situation is, please, please know that there is help available. We'll take a break. Before we go to break, uh, give us the link line again. Sure, Tom. It's one 800 897 L-I-N-K, which is 5465. And we're available 24-7. We're a free, confidential, non-government hotline. Um, you don't have to give any identifiable information. And, um, and we're there 24-7 to connect people to resources in their community. Uh, we'll go to break. Uh, I want to just um, put this out here, there and uh, then treat this after the break. Uh, you have said over the past 10 years, at least 43% of all Utah homicides have been perpetrated by an intimate partner. This rate far exceeds the national average. And you're using that to underscore, you'd go on to say Utah desperately needs the lethality assessment protocol. I want to talk about that, the different, you know, culture differences, what, why, the why behind that uh, stark statistic uh, following the break. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Over the last 30 years, South Carolina has done a great job in picking the candidate that becomes the Republican nominee for president. The political process is at the grassroots. It's when those polls open in South Carolina tomorrow morning. We'll broadcast from South Carolina. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Go to upr.org and find out how you can volunteer during UPR's next pledge drive. Some of the top reasons include getting to meet and work with the staff behind the scenes, you get to hang out with other like-minded, passionate public radio listeners, and it's good to get out of the house and help out in the community. Plus, there's the coffee and hot chocolate from Cafe Ibis. To schedule your volunteer opportunity, just go to upr.org. Thanks. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a program it's called Lethality Assessment Protocol Program. It helps connect domestic violence victims to resources that can help them. It helps the police. It's a series of uh, some 11 questions that can be asked to determine uh, the lethality of the situation. And it's been very um, successful in other states that have tried this. 
Uh, the statistics and research show that 47% of Utah homicides in 2015 were domestic violence related and that states that are using the lethality assessment protocol have reduced their domestic violence homicide rate by 50%. Utah Domestic Violence Coalition is asking the legislature to allocate $895,000 in one-time funding to expand LAP training uh, from the pilot program areas to statewide initiative. And we're talking with Jen Oxborough, Executive Director of Utah Violence, Domestic Violence Coalition. And we bring in now Representative uh, Ed Red. Dr. Red, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I want to uh, direct the first per, uh, question on this segment to uh, Jen Oxborough. I um, made reference to this just before the break, so I want to follow up with this. Um, this statistic. Over the past 10 years, at least 43% of Utah, all Utah homicides have been portrayed by an intimate partner, 43%. And, uh, uh, Jen Oxburgh, you say this rate far exceeds the national average? Right. According to the Centers for Disease Control and the Department of Justice, nationally, we know that about 30% of homicides are perpetrated by an intimate partner. In Utah, we have data from the Utah Department of Health back to 2000, actually, so it's longer than a 10-year trend, that indicates about 42.9% of homicides in Utah are perpetrated by an intimate partner. And that number is really conservative, Tom, because it doesn't always include children who are, are killed by the intimate partner homicide um, perpetrator. So, for example, if a child doesn't meet the legal definition of the Cohabitant Abuse Act in Utah, they are not included in those numbers. So the, the numbers that we're citing for Utah are actually pretty conservative. There are some that I think are in disbelief and they're kind of challenging the credibility of those numbers, but the Department of Health Violence and Injury Prevention Program is very defensible um, and reporting those numbers, I think, very conservatively. So that's a pretty big disparity between Utah and the nation. Um, why do you think that is? Any theories? Um, I think it has a lot to do with access to our services. I, our services are vastly underfunded. Most of the surrounding states um, in the Western Corridor have 30 to 40 programs that are funded by state money um, and federal money. And in Utah, we have 16 um, we're really grateful to our legislators and our law enforcement partners for helping to increase awareness about this um, and try to find some dedicated funding for state resources for domestic violence survivors because we know that we need to do more to engage them in services and not always shelter. There are a lot of supportive services that people can access to improve their safety that have nothing to do with leaving or going into a shelter. Let me turn to uh, Representative Red, uh, Dr. Red. Um, the lethality assessment protocol, this this uh, little under nine hundred thousand um, dollars. Are, are you going to be asking for that or or supporting this? Yeah, absolutely. We, we we met actually last night in the Executive Appropriations Committee and specifically brought up the need to to you know make sure that gets funded. Um, we had a lot of things on our list and uh, a lot of priorities that are very important. And uh, that certainly was one of them that we specifically talked about uh, outside of the rest of them that are on the list. And, and, and the reason why is because of the data. The data are fairly compelling, but, but also uh, if you understand you know, the mentality uh, and, and the thought processes of somebody who's in an abusive relationship, it's really, uh, they, they really have a lot of fear, uh, and they, they really sometimes live in a state of denial even sometimes. It's a kind of combination of fear and denial where they're afraid if they report or talk about the abuse with somebody, they're going to be ostracized or they're going to be, you know, the person who's doing the abuse is going to, you know, increase the abuse or, or, or threat. I mean, there's a lot of threats involved. There's a lot of demeaning types of feelings and people in abusive relationships oftentimes feel very low and don't feel like they're worthy or able to complain or ask for help. And so this intervention really, in my opinion, is extremely important in helping them understand that uh, they're not alone, that people understand that this, these sort of things happen and that they can talk to somebody about them and actually get services. And that's training police officers who are usually the first responders in these situations to be able to do this is extremely important. And doing it to fidelity is very important, too, based upon data from other states that have implemented this already. I want to pull, pull back uh, from the LAP to talking about domestic violence uh, in general and, and perspective, uh, a doctor's perspective on this. And also, uh, you've headed up health department. Uh. Yeah, so again, is, is, you know, the, for me, 
when you when you when you see, I mean, you can't necessarily identify somebody on the street who's who's in an abusive relationship or has been abused or is or is um, you know struggling with this problem in their lives, and I and and and, and they really are very reticent to ask for help for lots of different reasons. But the biggest problem is, to, is, is, is trying to get them to talk about it and start to, to you know, assess their situation, do an internal assessment themselves, help guide them through a self-assessment of what's going on in their lives and why that's not okay and what the dangers associated with it are. Uh, I mean, that's, again, that's, that's why this, this uh, you know, that's why this is such an important, you know, issue uh, because you know a lot of these not 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 most of them but some of these unfortunately end up in extremely bad situations and 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 again the data show that you know we have a lot of domestic violence related deaths in our state which a lot could be prevented if if we have the appropriate training uh, to intervene on the front lines people a lot of these people don't have access to health care providers or therapists uh, but when they call for help or dial 911 a police officer who's trained to to understand this problem and actually go through a process, a protocol to to try and assess the situation, assess the risk for this person is extremely important. Uh, so, if 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 this is successful, I assume there'd be more referrals to to social services. That's a you know that's a good thing. Get get the people out of the the bad situation. Uh, what follows, though, is maybe is there going to be no, more money needed to be allocated to social services? Well, I, I, again, that's that's it's really hard to to estimate exactly what the effect would be. There's lots of there's lots of social services costs. Some of them are because we don't intervene soon enough. Some of them because we fail to identify problems and intervene. For example, if you have a uh, suppose you do have a, a domestic violence. Uh, homicide, leaving uh, you know three children or four children uh, uh, still alive, but the mother dead, and and the father who killed the mother. Okay, that's that is all of a sudden you've got a, a you know a DCFS you know foster care issue on your hands. Uh, so just from a purely financial standpoint, let, let out the the, the the enormous pain and suffering of, of humans. Just looking at it from a purely financial standpoint, these kinds of early interventions actually would likely save state budget money, even though we might have to redirect some of it to, you know, shelter services and counseling, I'd much rather spend money on that than spend it on, you know, you know, foster care interventions that are much more costly and much and cause, quite honestly, end up in a lot more problems. So if we can preserve family relationships and keep families alive, especially parents alive, and keep families working together by intervening early and getting help for people who are having serious problems, which is, is in my estimate, my guesstimate, we're going to save a lot of money, not spend a lot of money. We may have to spend money in a different location, but again, I'd rather spend it on prevention rather than on trying to treat problems after they've happened. You know, Tom, yeah. um, just to support what Dr. Red has just explained, um, the really cool thing that the legislature did is they set aside a little bit of money so we could study this and look at the data as we're learning how to implement this in Utah. And the early data actually directly supports what Dr. Red just said. Only about 20% of the really high-risk cases that we're working with that we've screened for high intimate partner homicide risk, only about 20% actually come into emergency shelter. And that's our most costly event of service, to put a whole family in emergency shelter and support them for 30 to 60 days can be very costly and also very disruptive to their life. What we find is that most people that we engage early, that are high risk, that we engage earlier, they become much more stable much quickly, much more quickly when they have access to supportive services like legal advocacy and counseling, some of the things Dr. Red's talking about, which you know are much more cost-effective, much less disruptive, and help people attain safety a lot quicker. So it, it really, I think, is a cost-saving measure as well as an ethical um, approach to dealing with this important public health issue. Jen Oxborough, I wonder, I've been... Trying to apply some of these principles to you know to to me to our listeners if if we encounter a situation uh, and and what to do and I think someone without training you know feel a bit lost in this but want to help so the the, the questions on the lethality assessment protocol or some of these principles could that be helpful for for the layperson or or should we not try to jump in with that kind you of know thing? um. The, the protocol is actually much more complex than the 11 questions. Um, 
I think if you're looking to engage someone, if you're looking to be aware of this and, and do a good job with this in your family, in your community, you can always refer to our website. We have some great safety planning tips. You can always call our link line, 800-897-LINK, and talk to a victim advocate about how to engage someone in, in supportive services or how to talk with them, how to approach this with a family member or a loved one that you're worried about. Um, but I think, you know, I, I want to point out that other states have not been as successful with the LAP when they simply use the questions. It's really about the protocol, the process of connecting someone and raising their awareness and connecting them with a trained victim advocate who can engage them in supportive services and, and just, um, you know, overall advocacy that will help them to find improvements in their in their safety and their situation overall. Mm-hmm. Dr. Red, I, I want to ask you... Um kind of a variation of the same question I asked Jen Oxford earlier in the program, and it's it's along these same lines. Uh, if, if you become aware of a situation or or have suspicions, what would your suggestion be for, for someone to, to yeah, help out? I would I would always err on the side of get, of, of getting some, some help. I, and, and, you know, I've been in this situation before with one of my own uh, family members uh, who was, was involved in, in some domestic problems and uh, really was... Uh, to the point where she didn't feel like she was a worthy human being or could ask for help or deserve anything. Uh, and and I, I actually refer to, to CAPSA to get counseling because because as a parent or as a, uh, you know, a sibling or whatever, when you're dealing with your own family members, you can support them and love them and help them the best you can. But really, in addition to that love and support, they need they really need some some, pe- some help from people who who understand uh, and have the, the the professional expertise to to provide appropriate counseling and appropriate you know referrals and that sort of thing. So, I, I would just encourage people to to contact you know CAPSA if, if or in, in Cache Valley anyway. And there's other you know you know domestic uh, violence support systems and and, and 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 support systems across the state besides CAPSA, but in our county in Cache County, I, I would just encourage people to to contact them. And, and just you know, call the call her, call her hotline. Call, call up and ask them questions and say, "Hey, what should I do in this situation?" Rather than just sit home and worry about it, that would be my biggest suggestion. Because because none of us are experts at this, except people who really truly are experts. And I'm certainly not an expert in counseling for uh, people in abusive relationships or in domestic violence relationships. Uh, and I I need help too when I run into this situation. But I but I can tell you that that the interventions really help and, and help people get back on their feet and help them uh, get enough insight that they can actually start to take positive steps in their own life to, to not have, you know, to, to, to make improvements and not have, you know, bad outcomes. Jen Oxborough, we have less than a minute left, and I, it occurs to me there, there might be someone in the audience who's experiencing domestic abuse. So what would you say directly to that person? That there's help available, and, you know, I really worry that people hear that our system is at capacity and it may be difficult to get help, but there is help available, just what Dr. Red was saying. You can always reach out to someone that you trust. You can always reach out to our link line or to a community-based program, but just talk to someone and know that there is help for your situation, Um, and there are people who care about this and people who understand and can help improve safety. Give us your link line again. Our link line is 1-800-897-LINK, which is 1-800-897-5465. The website is uh, udvc.org. We have been uh, talking, and this is a very important issue, with uh, Jen Oxborough, Executive Director, Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for paying attention to this, Tom. And uh, Representative Ed Red has uh, joined us. Uh, Dr. Red, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. We, uh, we thank Chief of Police for West Valley City, Lee Russo, for joining us earlier in the program. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah.